For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Welcome to The Rock Podcast. The church at Thessalonica had enemies who were busy persecuting them and slandering their founding pastor in his absence. In his letter to his congregation, Paul must deal with those lies and rebuild the trust and confidence they once shared. Let's join Pastor Ross now with a message entitled, Our Joy and Crown. Alrighty, time to get started here. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We are making our way verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the earliest epistle known as 1 Thessalonians. We're going to take a look at chapter 2. We left off in the middle at verse 13, so you put your finger there. That's where we're headed. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Father, as we turn our attention to your living, God-breathed word from heaven that's alive and active, as the scriptures tell us, We want it to do its work in our hearts, a deep work. Lord, you know who we are and why you brought us here this morning. Please have your way. We want to cooperate with you. Help us uh, not to hinder your work, but to to cooperate, Lord, so that we can be blessed and be a blessing to others by these wonderful truths that set our hearts free. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, whoever coined the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never harm me, wasn't familiar with the Old Testament book of Proverbs, for sure, because it's written there that the tongue has the power of life and death. Solomon went on to write, the words of the reckless pierce like swords. Words can build up and heal or they can tear down and wound, as we all know. Reputations have been ruined, marriages wrecked, and ministries hindered. And it's these reckless words that hindered the ministry of the Apostle Paul and his ministry among the Thessalonians that he now has to address for two chapters. Chapters two and three, the theme is the vindication or the defense against slanderous words that said that his motives were, were bad and that uh, the gospel was a bunch of nonsense and that the church there was really uh, not very effective at all. And so the entire theme of chapters two and three is, is about coming uh, to that defense where there can be a bridge. They're offended because uh, the slanderers have all, also said of the apostles that they abandoned them, that they don't really love them, and that's why they're, they haven't been back since the time they started the church. So you recall uh, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, this, uh, his assistant pastors, uh, went to Europe for the very first time with the gospel. And there, a church sprang up in Philippi, and then the, that second church was in a place called Thessalonica, and they only spent three weeks there about 21 days, and you'll recall that some of the Jews from the synagogue, the leaders, got all jealous and envious because the synagogue pews 
heard the gospels, some of those from that synagogue, and they started leaving. They started, these Jewish people became believers in their Messiah, right? And so the Jewish leaders of the synagogue became envious, the scriptures say, Acts chapter 17. They stirred up a mob. They went to Jason the Greek. He became a Christian, and he was hosting the church planting team. And as you recall, they battered down the door looking for Paul. They couldn't find Paul, so they grabbed the the host of the house hosting Paul down to the court where they beat them and threw them into jail. They had a post bond. Well, when they got out, they escorted the church planters, Paul, Timothy, and Silas, out of town. And they said, hey, come back when you can. And they were like, yes, right away. As soon as the dust settles, we'll be back. But they hadn't had a chance to come back, and now it's been six months, and those same dudes who stirred up the riot against the new church and the apostles are the ones who are slandering and making up lies and hammering this poor little church that had just found the Lord and was echoing out the truth of God in that very dark city. And so they were kind of launching a preemptive Emptive attack against Paul. Hopefully he won't come back and make the situation even worse for them by preaching more of that nonsense. And so to kind of blow up the supply lines, they just hammered them. They're a bunch of frauds. They're after your money. They're hypocrites. They don't really love you. Where are they? They said they were coming back. Haven't heard from them, have you? That's because they took your money and they left you. You guys are victims. Oh, so Paul has taken chapters two and three to mend the fences that way. Because what, you know, it's, they're all lies, but as what Hitler's right-hand man, Joseph Goebbels said, he said, if you tell a big enough lie long enough, people will eventually come to think of it as true. You see, and so not everybody in the church was believing him, but they were wounded. They were hurt because night and day they're hearing all of this slander. Uh, And so that is where we pick up here. These words uh, have damaged the relationship. He wants to tell them about the second coming, the Antichrist, the rapture. That's chapter four and five. But he doesn't want them to put down the scroll because they're so offended. So chapters two and three is an effort to keep reading. We love you guys. Let's talk about when we came and how things were conducted. So that's the theme and that's the context of these words. He's rebuilding trust and confidence. You know, an offended heart is a closed heart. And so he wants the gospel to go into an open spirit. So here are the words starting at 13. Let's read to the end of the chapter. So, and we also thank God continually because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men. It goes on to say, 
in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they're always heaping up their sins to their limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what's our hope, our joy, the crown in which we'll glory in the presence of the Lord Jesus when he comes? Isn't it you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. And so he had a big assignment, man. They dug deep in with those lies. And you know who's behind that, of course. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 10 and following says, our struggle isn't about flesh and blood. It's not about the human beings so much when we battle these fights. It's the spiritual powers of darkness behind those mouths orchestrating those thoughts, taking advantage of human weaknesses and misunderstandings and confusion and separation. You see, what does the word devil mean? Diabolos, as I told you last time. In the Greek, diabolos, it means accuser, slanderer, to defame. All he's looking for is a few cooperative mouths and he's got some big ones there in First, uh, in first Thessalonians, in Thessalonica that make up First Thessalonians. And so his first strategy here, we're going to break that text apart so it can go away for now, but that's going to be our, our first point. Uh, but the spirit strategy so far, 1 through 12, if you weren't here for that, the strategy is really just lay the facts before reasonable people and that'll be enough. So always know that if you're dealing with a reasonable person, the facts usually are enough. If you're dealing with an unreasonable person, it, it doesn't make sense to be reasonable with them because they're not on a reasonable foundation. So somebody asked me first service, I have this problem this Christian is saying, you know, she's gone over way over here and she's arguing this. I don't know what to say. She's making no sense. And I say this and she says that. I say, listen, I can tell you what to say, but it won't matter because she's coming from a place that's not reasonable. This is what Jesus meant when he said, watch out that you don't take valuables like sacred things like pearls and, and, and just give them to people that don't appreciate them. They're hostile. They say, please don't honor that. Uh, or they're going to stomp on it with their feet into the mud. And then, the worst part, they'll turn and sink their teeth into you. So use discretion that way. That's important. And, and so all he's saying is, take a look. Uh, he said, one, verses 1 through 12, you saw, you heard, you heard the witnesses, when we were with you, remember, remember, remember? So he just let their lives and their methods and their motives, just their good life stood for itself, right? And so now he's moving on. He's going to continue to vindicate the ministry, but also the gospel, because they have said of the gospel, it's just the word of men. See, that is why he's saying the word of men, 
<laughs> yeah, let's talk about the results. And so the three th- areas that he's going to vindicate, he's going he's to vindicate by number one, affirming them and saying, hey, keep your eyes on what God is actually doing, right? And number two, he vindicates the ministry by encouraging them. He's saying persecution is actually a good sign. And then finally, in the big text, we close with he's going to be vindicating or defending the ministry and the gospel um, by teaching them about spiritual warfare, a, a kind of an ugly fact that we have to face as Christians that there is a devil and he works against Christians in advancing the kingdom. So as you see here, the first point really is already up. Paul's thankful. He's excited. He's joyful. In spite of all the, all the stuff that's being said about him, terrible, hurtful things about the gospel, about their church, and about him and Timothy and Silas. But look at him. He's saying, hey, listen, get our attitude. We're thankful to God because we see God's word, which is not nonsense and didn't come from man, at work doing these beautiful things. And that's why our perspective is on the life results of what the gospel did when we brought it to you. And that's proof enough. Keep your eyes focused there and you'll be able to be thankful and not disheartened by what people are saying about you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, look, the proof is in the pudding. All right, it doesn't matter what people are saying. The proof in the pudding is in the pudding just simply means the end result is the is really the 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 end result of the work is tells you is the mark of success or failure of one's efforts. And so was it nonsense? Well what do we have there? We have people who have turned from idols to serve the living and true God. We have a church whose faith is known throughout the region, chapter one. We have lives that are changed. We have immoral people who have become the, the model citizens. We have drunks who are sober now. We have guys who are liars now telling the truth. We have greedy people now generous and content with the things that they have. Yeah, nonsense? Was that, or was it the word of God which we're thankful for, was at work in your hearts. That's exactly what he's saying. Instead of obsessing, and listen to this, and this is very Bible, how to deal with detractors. Instead of obsessing on the critics' digs, we're thanking God for what he's accomplishing. And look, he wants them to put their eyes here. Look at what God is doing, not at what your critics are saying. So... Let your good life, let your good words speak for themselves and let all of this be trusted to the sovereignty of God. That's really the point. He says, I want you to make a connection between the gospel you received and the new powerful changes that you're experiencing in your life and draw your, make your conclusions by that, not by this. Who cares what they're saying? Look at your life. Now, you used to be bound to that sin, and now you're not doing that anymore. But they're saying, it's a bunch of nonsense. Ah, the proof is in the life. Stay there. Ignore that. Don't be disheartened by that. So, hmm, not to belabor the point, 
but <laughs> it's so helpful to have the Bible teaches us how to handle slander. You know, uh, Jesus went with the same logic. Now, check this out. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. He said, John the Baptist, he lived a pretty strict and austere kind of life. You know, he did a lot of fasting. He didn't drink wine and he didn't go to parties, you know. And you know what they said about him? He was demon-possessed. Then he says, and then I come along, the son of God. I like dinner parties. I like hanging out with people. You know, I, I go to those events. And you know what they called me? A glutton and a drunk. He said, but wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. The King James says, by her children. And here's what that just means. I love that. That's what Paul's doing right here. He's going to let them talk all day long. There's a healthy church standing there. Who cares what they're saying? There's a healthy church that the gospel's ringing out throughout Macedonia. Everybody, everywhere has heard about what's going on there. So who cares what they're saying? Ignore it and look at the results. That's what Jesus did. Oh, you can say what you want about John the Baptist. He's demon-possessed. Oh, really? Well, he led thousands of people to the Lord, and he prepared the way for the Messiah. And say what you want about Jesus the Christ. But we had dead people speaking at their own funerals. (laughs) We had lame people who were leading on the dance floor at their weddings, all right? We have blind people, formerly blind people, who are painting beautiful canvases of the Sea of Galilee. So go ahead. Talk smack all day long about Christianity and the gospel, the gut religion and all of that. Let your good life and your good words and your good deeds and your wonderful transformation transportation (laughs) and let that car speak (laughs) whoops and let that powerful transformation of your life say it all no matter what they're saying isn't that the point of what's going on there amen so slander paul all you want say the gospel's nonsense it's the word of men yeah hmm a lot of powerful things are happening there. It wasn't the word of men, philosophy. You know, I love this text, and you see it all the time. What is, the Bible on the Bible. So people will say, men wrote the Bible. I'll say, well, that's, and this is what I always say. Well, that's not what the Bible says about the Bible. The Bible says about the Bible that God wrote the Bible, that men held the pen and the spirit dictated from within. That's what the Bible says, that First uh, Peter isn't it First Peter? It's Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. It says, above all, realize this. No scripture, no prophecy has its origin in any man. But men of God's choosing were filled with his spirit, and his spirit spoke through them. That's what the Bible says of the Bible. It says it's God. God breathed, you see. And so listen, the word of men, he says, the really, the word of men. I'll tell you what, the word of men can touch your heart, but it can't change it into something that it wasn't before. It it can touch you, but it can't remake you like the word of God. How do you go from Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons and living an immoral life, how do you go from her 
to the Mary Magdalene, who is the first to announce the gospel to the male disciples who are hiding somewhere at home because they're all afraid. How do you go from an immoral woman to the first woman, first witness of the resurrection? How do you go from a Christian-hating murderer, the Apostle Paul, hunting them down? He found, he, he had Stephen in Acts 7 killed. He was involved in that. And he went through Stephen's stuff and he found letters. And he found letters with addresses in Damascus over the border to his Christian friends. And he hunted them down. But on the way, something was ringing in his head. The word of God from one of Stephen's sermons. And it was coming together and the Lord just had to push him over. He was right there. And boy, was that a pushover. <laughs> Acts chapter 9. Bam! On the ground in the dirt where, you know, guys like Paul needed to start their Christian journey. And and a lot of other people, amen? amen. And so, yeah, come on, the word. <laughs> word uh, is nonsense. Whenever I hear that, gospel's nonsense. You and your imaginary friend, somebody told me. And I said, well, how do you explain? How do you explain me, 19 years old? I'd never been in a church before. I ridiculed and hated Christians. I moved out because my Jewish father became one. So I had to get away from that. How do you explain walking in a bar and walking out, having had a vision, a born-again Christian who goes back to his apartment and starts to tell people about Jesus? I didn't even know what I was saying. All I said, there's a heaven, there's a hell, there's a Jesus. You need him. You know, what? Uh, I didn't even know what was coming out of my mouth. Explain that, I said to somebody. And he says, I said, explain that gospel. That's powerful stuff. I stopped cussing. I, I was a lawbreaker. I became a law abider. I, I hated Christians. Then I are one. You know, come on. <laughs> and what does he say? He says to me, here's a quote. You had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> nervous breakdowns don't improve your life. <laughs> they don't make your life better. You know, when someone says, hey, you know, John had a nervous breakdown. We go, oh, good for him. <laughs> we don't do that. You right? You had a nervous breakdown. Oh, my imaginary friend, he's been pretty busy. He's been pretty busy. And so Paul says, you know what? You tell them when they say, you've got an imaginary friend. You know what? Let your life, let your speech, let your Thoughts, let your words vindicate the authenticity of the message, the accuracy of the word of God, and the reality that there's a God in heaven, and he's got a first name, Jesus. Jesus, amen? Amen. <laughs> amen. All right, so yeah, he goes on, believe it or not, uh, to another form of vindication. Let's put that text up there for you. So he says, for you brothers became imitators of God's churches, all right? You suffered from your own countrymen, the same thing all churches everywhere, including the first ones, suffered. And then he goes on to describe the persecutors, and so we'll leave that up there. So now he's going to vindicate the ministry and the gospel 
in a very unlikely way. He's going to talk about the proof of their genuine Christianity is the suffering and the persecution they're receiving. Wow. He's saying, instead of being disheartened that people give you a hard time about being a Christian, instead of being discouraged about that, you ought to check that off as, wow, bingo, I got the real deal. That's what Jesus taught us. He said, welcome, God has accepted you and the world will reject you. Why? Well, John 15, I have it for you. Here's the Lord speaking. If the world doesn't really like you very much, could you keep in mind that it hated me first? Uh, if you belong to the world, you'd fit in. Everybody love you and applaud all your views and all of that stuff, and you'd be just perfect. It would love you. You fit in. You think like them. You talk like them. You act like them. There's no rub rubbing them the wrong way. As it is, though, <laughs> you don't belong to the world anymore I have chosen you out of this world. So when you open your heart and the Holy Spirit comes in, he kind of removes you from the world's Christ-rejecting, truth-hating kind of ways. He says, that's why the world can't stand you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you also. Come on. He says, you don't even have to do anything. You don't even have to do anything anything for the world to push back on you. You just have to get changed and say you're a Christian, not saying a word. I'm sitting at work when I was an English teacher at a college. We're all eating our lunch. I was minding my own business. I just eating lunch with my coworkers and everybody's just criticizing the administration, saying nasty things about this person and that person. I kind of tuned out. I was in my own little world as I often am. And, <laughs> and suddenly a guy looks up and engages me and says, what's your problem? Why don't you have anything bad to say about any, anybody? You think you're better than everybody here? <laughs> Excuse me? Whoa. Not a word. I'm in trouble. Why? My lack of involvement and what they know they're doing is not right, is testifying to him, you're not doing the right thing because there's somebody here just not doing it. Oh, that's all you have to do. I didn't have to say, hey, you know, cool it. Not nice to talk so much smack about people for whom you work and sign your paychecks. I didn't say anything. I'm eating a turkey sandwich for crying out loud. Leave me alone. I didn't say that. I don't remember what I said. I'm sure it was clever. <laughs> My gosh, listen. Oh, let's get over this. The gospel is an irritant in the world. He calls it salt and light. How do you like it when your eyes are not accustomed to the light and you're laying in bed and, and it's been dark for a while, and some bozo walks in. Oh, sorry. Whoops. Some bozo little brother just got elbowed <laughs> and turns on all the lights. And you are blinded, and you are irritated, and you want that light to stop shining, or somebody's going to die. <laughs> That's how it is out there. You're out there shining the light. You don't even... Who wants you at Thanksgiving anyway after you get saved? 
You're going to want to pray over the meal. You want to talk about Jesus this and Jesus that. And, you know, oh, that reminds me in the Bible. Who wants that around? Well, we could just be stuffing our faces in peace and quiet, you know? That's how the world is. So he says, listen, what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5? He said, your persecution by the world is something should make you very happy. Matthew chapter 5. Blessed, happy are those, Jesus speaking, who are persecuted, strong word, because of being right with God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven, for they're the ones going to heaven. Happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, and make up all kinds of stuff against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. But I like the last line. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What is he saying there? Oh, dude, (laughs) you have entered. Congratulations. You have now entered a very prestigious and elite company. They're called the prophets, the Bible heroes. He's saying, man, you got what the prophets got. And you're getting it because you got the real deal. So he's saying, be happy. If you ever wonder, hey, am I going to heaven or not? And you get a lot of pushback from the world. Why do you think like that? Why do you believe that? And you're so narrow-minded and all of that. Jesus says, bing, it's a vindication of your genuine salvation and the work of God in your heart and life. It's a beautiful thing, he says, It doesn't always. So to your text, if I were to paraphrase that, here's what it would say. You Greeks, you heard the gospel and you welcomed it by faith. And the word of God began to work in your hearts. And you became acting like every other Christian church in the world, even like the very first churches. He says the very first churches started in Israel. They were Jews who received Christ. They were Jewish Christians. And he said, what happened there? Well, a Jewish church who loved Jesus sprung up and they were hammered by the Jews around them. He says, oh, now in Europe, a thousand miles difference, 20 years down the road, a different language, a different time, different ethnicity, but a little Christian church springs up and what happens there? Oh, surprise, your fellow countrymen who should be saying, whoa, what happened to you? I want to hear more about this, Jesus, because I know you were an idol worshiper, and now you're, wow, wow, you got a different life. No, instead, they want to eradicate that. He said, you got the real thing. So he says, and let's talk about those people, the Jews of that synagogue who are persecuting you, some of you, to death. Let's talk about these persecutors. It's good insight for them to have. So he calls out the opposition, and he says, who are they? And he calls them, in your text, the Jews. Well, one writer put it this way. He said, Paul is obviously writing here about a particular Jewish people, those who've shown hostility to the gospel and God's messengers, and not about the Jews in general. Well, everybody kind of who's read the Bible a little bit knows that's a given, that he's not cursing the Jews and all this tirade here that he's going to accuse them of. Well, um, actually what he's doing is talking about those specific people. And so we, we know 
Paul's a Jew. Silas is a Jew. Timothy is a Jew. Uh, He said, I'd switch places because of my great love for them in a heartbeat, you see? And he talks about God's irrevocable goodness to Israel and that in the end, Israel turns and becomes a Christian nation when he returns through the tribulation period. So he, the whole Bible affirms the Jewish people, uh, but when some of them are rejecting, they sort of stand for the nation's stance at the time. And that's what the, the phrase, the Jews, the enemy here is talking about. It would be kind of like talking about Germans during World War II. You're not talking about every last German, or are you talking about Germany as a whole? But you, you get the idea of what's going on at the moment when you would say the Germans back in uh, during World War II. And that's what he's doing here. And he accuses them of five terribly scary things. And the worst one in your text right there is that they did the deed. He said, the guys who are slandering us and giving you guys a bad time are the kinds of men who killed the Lord Jesus. Now, those are breathtaking words, but we need to talk about that concept. Uh, Who killed the Lord Jesus, uh, really? Who and what initiated that death? Well, technically speaking, the Bible says there are men, Jewish men, they were Jewish leaders. The Bible says out of envy, they arrested Jesus and falsely accused him and a kangaroo court was in place and they sentenced him to death. They did that. They're responsible. Those men who did that, they're responsible for that. Then who else is implicated? Well, the Romans are because they carried it out. It was against the law for them to uh, have an execution, so they went to Pilate. And Pilate and the Romans who actually did the deed, they're implicated in it. But ask the question, who else is implicated in this death? We got the technicalities, we got the Jewish leaders, and we got the Roman leaders. But who else? Well, the Bible talks about that. When Jesus himself says, hey, he says, no one kills the Son of God. I lay down my life for the sheep. I came to give my life a ransom. He's telling everybody from the time, the the birth announcement, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, for he shall save his people from their sins. He was born to die. This was God's plan. 700 years before Jesus appears as God the Son in Bethlehem, Isaiah the prophet said it was God's good plan. Isaiah 53, it was God's good plan. I'm quoting. It was God's good plan to crush him, to make him an offering for our sins so that he would have many descendants those who are saved. So who killed Jesus? Well, now we've got now an implication of God the Father was in some sort of plan with God the Son, who said, hey, before the foundation of the world, I was already slain for sins. So 10,000 times 10,000 years before this world was, God said, I had already died for the sins of the world. So it wasn't like the good Jesus was killed for his good work. Jesus' good work was to be killed. He came as God the Son to bear our sins and take them away and give us eternal life. 
Then who killed Jesus? Well, he died for our sins and he came to pay for our sins. All right, then who killed him? Well, if he paid for our sins, anyone who has sins is implicated. Paul the apostle implicates himself in killing Jesus in that his sins had to be paid for. Galatians 2.20, right? So it comes down to this. Who killed Jesus? Our sins killed Jesus. I killed Jesus. There's beautiful painting hanging in open door in Petaluma. I don't know if it's still there. I have it. Just, you know, you see this guy? <laughs> He's got a mallet in one hand and a spike in the other. You know, in, in the passion of the Christ, Mel Gibson for, for everything that, you can be, that can be said about him, he did understand this concept in that the hand that holds the spike in the passion is Mel Gibson's hand. You see, he gets that part, at least. That's an important part to get. It was for me. Unto us, a son is given. Unto us, a child is born. Think about that. So he says, but these are the men who did the deed. But it's good to know that we all had our part. The second thing he accuses them of is killing the Lord's prophets, right? So if you, if you don't like a person, you also don't like the person who's talking about that person. So that's the second one. Thirdly, it says, and they drove us out. Well, that's putting the apostles on the same level as the prophets, which is the intention of that verse. And then you have number four, they displease God, which is the understatement of the world, right? I mean, how can you say all those things and say, and by the way, yeah, they displease God because, and I'll tell you why, and this will make sense, they're religious people. They're from the synagogue with robes and tassels, and they come out of a church building as they're persecuting. So they're the big paradox is these are men whose lives are supposed to be pleasing God. They're religious guys. And he's saying just the opposite's happening. They're not pleasing God. They're displeasing God. That's why that's in there because they're trying through their religious devotion of persecuting the church. What did Jesus say? Jesus said there's a time coming when men will kill you and think they're offering a service unto God. Allah Akbar. Right before says, Allah is the greatest. You see, men who are trying to please God, but he says, actually, nothing but disdain, right? And then finally, it says, and by the way, in general, they're just hostile. They're hostile, militant atheists who reject Christ are just angry. They're angry people, right? So he's saying, here's why they're hostile. If I'm not going to have eternal life, if I'm not getting my sins forgiven, you won't either. So it's not enough. They couldn't just say, hey, it's a bunch of nonsense. We don't agree. And yeah, it's taking a few people from our synagogue. Well, who cares? Oh, no. He says, there's a form of unbelief that's militant, hostile to everybody. And says, listen. I'm not keeping those Ten Commandments. Those Ten Commandments bug me. They remind me that I'm breaking them all the time, so I want them out of the courthouse square, 
right? Oh, yeah, I like to jog Spring uh, Lake, right? And I don't want to see a cross out of white stones on a hill. So I'm going to tear that apart and I'm going to petition. So he petitions, he, the atheist, petitions. I don't want anybody else to see the cross. It's not enough that I can turn my head and I can exclude myself from the benefits of whatever that cross means. That's not where I stop. Where I stop is I want no one to be able to get any benefits from any cross whatsoever. So he went up there and they dismantled it. And so I had a guy who came up to me and said, Pastor Russ, I have sort of a confession to make. And I said, what did you do? And he said, well... You know the cross for Spring Hill? They, they, uh, uh, spring Lake or whatever. It's the spring up there. <laughs> well, it's a, another church in the community. <laughs> they pulled it apart. And all you could see was just like a little crooked line up there. So I went up there and I put it all back together. <laughs> and I went, dude, you're my hero. Free lunch. Right there. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. One more story. Can I? Come on. We're cooking you lunch. Oh, it's going out my head right now because I thought about lunch. <laughs> oh, I got it. All right. So we had somebody stay for a summer at our house. A young person arrived from a distant place and they were getting acclimated to a new city. And, and they came in. Uh, well, I heard the car pull up and somebody said, oh, they're here. And, uh, and it took a while for that person to get into our house. And I, and I said, what took you so long? You're down there forever. And that person says, my dad was giving me talking points against religion because he knows you're going to try to affect me for the gospel. So he was giving me all the reasons why I should remain an atheist. And he was giving me a pep talk. The grief that will come over hearts that realize in the end, it wasn't just my own private battle with God that was going on. Nope. You stumbled others as well. And that's what trips the mechanism for Paul to say the wrath of God. Because it's one thing to exclude yourself from eternal life. It's a whole other thing when you stick your foot out like that and stumble somebody and it causes them willful, their own willful belief and they're culpable, but it helps them to perish. That's a serious sin. Jesus said this. Jesus said, if, you get, if you're like that and you get a choice of two destinies, I'll tell you which one to choose. The concrete block chained to your neck out on a boat in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and get tossed out into the sea. Choose that one if you're a stumbler of people from coming to me and eternal life. Pick that destiny because that destiny will be happiness compared to what's waiting for you for that.
That's what they were doing. So he says that that, the, that kind of thing, God's not going to wink at. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. Isn't it quite as snarky as it sounds there? It sounds harsh and uh, without feeling like, finally. No, it doesn't mean that. It means in the last days, after Jesus has died for our sins, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, sent the Holy Spirit, and now there's a church on the earth that the prophets have already foretold destruction coming. So he's saying we are in those final days when the wrath of God will come. And let me show you what he's talking about. 20 years from the writing of that letter will be 70 AD and this painting, a famous painting, a Scottish painter in the 1800s painted this called the Siege of Jerusalem. So one day Jesus was walking down the steps in the temple and his disciples say, man, look at all these rocks and beautiful stones. And Jesus said, oh, I tell you, the day's coming soon where not one of those rocks is going to be upon another. They're all coming down. So 20 years, two decades after those words and the writing, actually, of uh, this letter came the destruction of Jerusalem. A million Jews perished under Roman General Titus, who came in like a flood, and just leveled it. If you go to Israel with us in Jerusalem next year, you'll stand where we have stood. The rocks. The rocks, what, the wrath of God. I mean, the rocks are still there, torn down. They remain as a testimony of these very words that the wrath of God uh, has come upon them. And, and, you know, there are 2,000 years of history, though, of grace Come to me. He said, I'm the cornerstone. Come to me. Be safe. Build your life on me. You know, God always is so faithful to give us a way out. And then there are closing words. And then with this, we finish. Verses 17 through 20. Something a little less intense on the lighter fare. Amen. That's kind of nice. Well, sort of. He says, but brothers, let, let, let me explain to you and vindicate our ministry they're, they're accusing us of leaving you high and dry, of using you, taking your money and leaving, and not loving you and victimizing you. And I'll tell you what, if you read these words with me, honestly, can you feel the pain? Oh, those new converts, that church was hurting. They were cut to the heart. They really felt offended and hurt and wounded, right? Right? Because listen to how he pours out his heart there. He's vindicating by giving clarity. And he's going to introduce a new concept to young believers. Hey, something's going on that you can't see, and I want to tell you about that. So first of all, uh, he says, you know, he says brothers. So he's talking about great love there. And he says, when we were torn from you, we don't want to go. In fact, it was your idea. You guys, if you read Acts 17, they come and they escort them out for their own good. They didn't want to go. So he's reminding them when we were torn apart. The Greek word there is beautiful. It's a word that means to be separated by death, sudden death of parents and children. That's the strong word. When, when that terrible car accident happened, 
and, and we lost each other in that mob, in that confusion. And of course there was, hey, come on back. We'll be back as soon as we can. Okay, maybe after Passover, whatever, right? Life got in the way and someone else got in the way and he's gonna reveal that person because the devil is a person. So we're gonna talk about that. Uh, so he goes on to say, hey, yeah, we were gone out of sight, but not out of mind, man. And look at verse 17. There was an intense longing in the Greek. You cannot have a stronger word than that. It, we were bubbling over with this, this warm affection and hot love for you, of course, which prompted efforts. Look at your text. He says again and again. He says, we, but Timothy and Silas have been. We find out in Acts, they made it, but Paul, no. So he said, hey, we want it again and again. He says, eh, and me, especially me. That's the problem they have. The problem is with Paul. And then he says something very, very interesting. Spiritual warfare 1A to baby believers. He says, I wanted to come to you many times, but the devil stopped me. Wow. Let's stop and think about that. What is he saying? Because when, when something like that happens in the scriptures, usually you see God, him saying, God redirected us, or God prevented us, or the spirit worked it differently. But in this case, he's going to teach these new believers the difference between God's sovereign active will and God's permiss permissive will. In other words, there are things that God does that is God-generated. I want to bless them. I want them to be loving each other. I want this good thing to happen, and, it, and he wills it to happen. Then there are things that were never born in the heart of God because God doesn't sin or take delight in any evil that God will allow. He allows. He's sovereign. He's in control of the planet. So he's allowed it. For a purpose. We call that his permissive will. And so Paul's going to say, he's not going to tell him, look, he could have said, hey, you know what? We weren't there. We haven't been there six months. I've been wanting to get there, but God had different plans. He could have said that. But they're new believers, and it's true. But he wants them not to think, oh, well, you know, God just thought a little suffering would be good for you guys. And, and, you know, God's in all of this frustration, separation. No, ultimately God used that, but he's going to tell them another truth. He's going to say, there's a devil. And as every time I went to go your way, roadblock, hurdle, again and again and again. And it wasn't God's heart. It was the devil's heart, and he's behind separating and twisting the words and hurting and confusion and, and all of that. That's, we're going to lay that on the devil. And he said, because it's the truth. Now, spiritual trigonometry is how did the devil win? Why did God let that happen? You're saying, hey, I wanted to do something that God would say, that's a good thing. But Satan stopped. He won. That's spiritual trigonometry. They're not ready for that. Maybe later he'll say, hey, and by the way, Satan was up to his tricks. God allowed it. But guess what? Something good came of it. What might the good be 
that God allowed and used the devil's obstacles to keep them apart. The good is this. If Paul had been with them, spending months and months with them, we wouldn't need 1 Thessalonians. We wouldn't need 2 Thessalonians because he was with them. Right? You see? So the devil's doing his thing. Stop, stop him, stop him, stop him, stop him. And the Lord's like, exactly. Stop him. Right? Because I want to write about the Antichrist and the second coming and the rapture. I want to write two New Testament books. So yeah, go ahead. Stop him. Oh, there's a roadblock. Oh, see, he, God sometimes allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. And that's what was going on there. He says, listen, there's a devil. Now they're like, whoa, that explains a lot. We better start praying differently. We better start being more alert about our lives and all of this stuff because he's at work. You know how many Christians think, when's the last time you thought the devil was at work trying to hinder your life? You, You know, there are Christians who are excessive there and unhealthy. And then I would rather err on the excessive unhealthy if I had to choose, then somebody walks around with big Mr. McGlue glasses on, you know, duh, you know, praise the Lord, and no clue that there's a, a serpent kind of in the room looking for an opportunity to strike. Come on, people. So he tells these new believers, hey, not in my heart, and it wasn't in God's heart. It's in the devil's doing all this mess. Yeah, so he goes on and he says, listen, you don't think we love you? And here's how he closes out the chapter and this message. He says, come on. Who is our hope, our joy? The the thing that gets me most excited every day as I look forward, the thing that makes us most happy. And when I get to heaven, the thing that I'm going to be boasting about, the funnest, most glorious thing, when I, the Apostle Paul speaking, gets to heaven, he's going to say, the number one thing that's going to make me light up like a Christmas tree is you. Jason, Jason, you who housed us, you who opened your home, they came looking for me, and they found you, Jason, and they drove you out and beat you. And the brothers had to take an offering to spring you out. He said, when you and I stand before God and my weak efforts were used by God to rescue you out of eternal damnation into eternal life, you're the reason that you guys are the reason I get out of bed in the morning. The, 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 my prayers, my life, my focus, that's all I think about night and day. How could you let those words get in between me and you? It's like a father to children, a mother to their baby. We led you to life. How could you doubt that you're not the reason we live? Our greatest joy. You know, I saw a picture of a guy who led some survivors from his office of the Twin Towers coming down and they survived. I have the picture. 
there was really no way out. And this guy just was like, let's try this way. And it worked. But look at them. They're all covered with debris. They're in shock. Look at the guy's face, you know. And they're following him. And, and, And they have kind of like, well, they have a, a party and a, a reunion afterwards. There is a bond between that man and those people. There's a love, there's a joy, there's something that nobody can understand and that's not going to be broken. They went through this trauma and Paul is saying, we were in a train wreck called the fall and somehow God led me to you guys in Europe, in Thessalonica, and, and I had stuff covered on me as well, and I'm like, uh, follow me as I follow Christ. And, and some of you believed and got the word of God, and you came in behind, and we started walking together out. And now we find ourselves in safety and eternal life in the presence of God, in the palaces of heaven. He says, what do you think I'll be bragging about on that day? Yeah, it'll be nice to be there myself. Yeah, it'll be nice to see Jesus. But when you see Jesus, and I'm able to say, "Ah, this is what I was telling you about every Sunday morning. He says, that's it. And now you know those Thessalonians. There's not a dry eye in that church. The smile's back, the warmth's back. And they love him and he loves them and they know it. And now he can start talking a little bit more about things that they have questions about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this chapter. We've learned some great things about. We pray, God, that you'd work in our hearts and help us to put into practice the these wonderful principles and truths that set our hearts free. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Closing song. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.